0: We began this series over six weeks ago, and I named it The Queen's Gambit. Today, we come to the passage that inspires that title. When I introduced the series, I mentioned that The Queen's Gambit in the chess game is a risky move that has a payoff later, and here's how it works. Usually, the white makes the first move, and then the expectation is that the black pawn would meet it in the middle. Now, the queen's gambit is when the next move by white places the next pawn right next to the other pawn. And when that happens, it gives the opportunity for the black player to take out the white pawn. However, what it has just done is open the center of the board for the white Uh, player. So let's think about this for a moment. The queen's gambit is the oldest known move or opening move in the game of chess. And what we find is there's a willingness to temporarily give up a piece for an advantage later on. Now, in the passage that we have today, Esther in chapter 5, is willing to move to the middle of the board. So let's take these pawns and move them back. And again, we're not, we're not keeping the rules of chess. This is just simply a metaphor, an illustration. So what we find taking place is Esther moves to the middle of the board to meet the king. And it is here in chapter 5, her desire is to relate this on upcoming... Um, extermination of the Jewish race. There is another character, though, that is standing alongside King Ahasuerus. His name is Haman. In verses 1 through 5 of chapter 5, it reads, On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall, facing the entrance. And when he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her and held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. This chapter happens on the third day, which is symbolic, as I mentioned last week. And it is here that Esther is willing to reveal her identity, and in fact embrace a better identity than being Miss Persia. We see her struggle with this in the flow of the chapter, but also in that passage that I read from the additions to the book of Esther in the Greek text, we find that Esther is struggling with this because she knows it's a dangerous move to make. Esther, though, feels she cannot be duplicitous. She has a better identity than Miss Persia. Her identity is that of Miss Israel and is willing to find the courage to reveal this to her husband, the king. Now here's the problem, and here's where the queen's gambit comes in. She is only allowed to enter into the king's presence if he invites her. Now this is the kind of thing that you just don't gamble on. You don't try to get a meeting with the king unless you really, 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 really need one. Because if he's in a bad mood, he could reject her. And he possibly could not only depose her, but her life itself might be at risk. Nonetheless, Esther is resolved, and so she puts on her royal apparel, and she goes before the king, and by dressing in her royal robe, she is showing respect. But in the passage that I read from the Greek translation earlier in the service, she felt weird about this. And she is praying to God because all of a sudden she realizes that she has stepped into a royal position. But that's not her true identity. Her true identity is with her brothers and sisters in the Jewish race. Now, I wonder what is going on in the mind of Esther as she makes this move. Well, again, that other passage tells us that she is filled with fear. She has not seen the king face to face for 30 days. And is he mad at her? Or will he be pleased with her as she makes her entrance? Now, we find here in the king's gambit that she enters the throne room. And as the king looks up and as he sees her, he holds out his royal scepter and he extends a welcome to her. In fact, he's delighted to see her. And he asks an opening question to Esther, what is it? Queen Esther. And then it says here in verse 3, the king asks, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be given to you. Now that's quite an offer, isn't it? However, it's a figure of speech. In other words, he's not really offering her half of the kingdom of Persia. It's sort of like when we say something to someone we love, I'll give you the moon. Well, we're not going to literally give them the moon. It's expressing on this Valentine's Day a great expression of fondness to do what she wants. So, in other words, the expression is an exaggeration. She, compete, uh, come, uh, she keeps her composure, and she doesn't leak and freak out uh, with what she came in to tell the king she knows she needs to tell him that he needs to reverse the decision that was made about killing the Jews. But instead of launching into the conversation with, hey, I'm a Jew and you are a genocidal maniac because you made this decree, she begins to play him a little bit. And you need to see that in this chapter. She's playing him so that he will be in favor of doing what she asks. Now, let's come back to the game of chess for a moment. I read, because I'm not a good chess player, that in chess, most of the time, two players can play to a draw called a stalemate most often, unless they get inside the mind of the other player. In other words, they need to play their opponent more than play, play the pieces on the board. Now, that's an interesting strategy, and I think that's what Esther is doing in this chapter. So Esther makes a petition to the king that not only the king, but also Haman would come to a banquet that she has prepared for them. Take a look at verse uh, 4. It says, if it pleases the king, let the king together with Haman come to, uh, today to a banquet that I have prepared for him. Okay, who is the him? Is it the king or is it Haman? Ah, there's all kinds of things that are going on here. And we'll see a little bit later that King Ahasuerus or Xerxes, goes by either name, becomes outraged at Haman. And I am wondering at this point in the text whether or not Esther is playing them against each other. Well, let's move on. We see that she has moved from fasting to feasting again. We saw three banquets in the first chapter. We see two of them here in chapter 5. So King Ahasuerus understands that Esther desires this banquet, but something is up. She doesn't risk her life for a dinner invitation, but she has something on her mind, and yet Whether it is fear or whether it is the way that Esther is playing these two men against each other, Esther backs off of telling King Ahasuerus what it is that Haman has planned to exterminate the Jews. Now what made her decide not to go ahead and tell the king? We are not told. It could be that what she is trying to do is draw Haman out into the light to show his dark and devious plot. Maybe, just maybe, she is playing the man, not the board. Well, Haman receives this invitation. Verse 5 says, Bring Haman at once, the king said, so that we may do what Esther asked. So the king and Haman went to the banquet that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine, the king asked Esther again, Now what is your petition? It will be given you. And what is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. In other words, if it is within my possibility to do it, I will do it for you. Now, I don't know about you but I think I would have blurted it out right at that moment. You see this guy? He is an evil, devious individual that wants to eradicate a complete race of people called the Jews. Now, think about Haman for a moment. He is having his own identity crisis to a certain extent. Why is it that he issued this decree in the first place? Well, there was this one Jew named Mordecai that would not bow down to him. And so what we find taking place is his pride is hurt and he wants everyone to know that he's important. He's a narcissist. He's a narcissist. And what we find is that Haman, no doubt, is puffed up with this invitation to have this private dinner with the king and queen. And that pride is felt in the rest of the chapter as we see him going home and telling his wife and his friends that he had an audience with the king and the queen. Here is this individual, though, because he is a narcissist, because he is full of arrogance and he desires accolades, that he is incapable of feeling empathy at all. When he asked the king to make this decree to eradicate the Jewish people, there's not an ounce of empathy in his soul. And here's the problem. Here's the problem. He idolizes his position. He idolizes the accolades. He idolizes being somebody. He is wrapped up in this identity. And when you idolize, you will certainly demonize. Let me say that again. Here's the problem, when you idolize something, you more than likely will have to demonize something as well. So Haman has idolized his race and his position. And when we idolize both of those, there are victims involved. When we idolize our nation, we have the tendency to demonize other nations. When we idolize our race, we at times will demonize other races. And so Haman has done that. And now he's leaving the banqueting hall with this joyful and glad heart. He tells us uh, what he's feeling in this text in verse 9. Haman went out on that day very happy and in high spirits. But something is going to bring him down. When he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and he went home. So he's on cloud nine. He has this banquet he went to. He's come out. He is the right-hand person to King Ahasuerus. He is an individual that has gone home riding the uh, cloud nine. And then he sees Mordecai. And Mordecai refuses to bow down. And he now is filled with rage. And as he is filled with rage, what we find is he makes a resolution in his heart that he has to publicly humiliate Mordecai. Now, let's not get ahead of ourselves here. So as he passes the gate, Mordecai, within his identity as a Jewish person, makes a resolution that he is not going to honor Haman no matter what. And so what we find taking place is when Haman finally gets home, he calls his wife, he calls his friends together. Take a look at verse 10. Calling together his friends... And Zeresh, his wife, Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and all the ways the king had honored him, and how he had elevated him above other nobles and officials. And that's not all. Haman added, ah, there's a second banquet that Esther wants to prepare. And Queen Esther invited him And it says here in verse 12, I'm the only person, I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave, and she has invited me along with the king tomorrow. But all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. So all of the joy of being in the presence of the king and the queen goes down the tubes. And what we find is there's a second invitation for Ahasuerus and Haman to join Esther for a second banquet. In the meantime, though, Haman's wife, Zeresh, verse 14, and all the friends said to him, Have a gallows built 75 feet high, and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai Hanged on it. Oh man, that would be a wonderful spectacle during this second banquet. Then go with the king to dinner and be happy. This suggestion delighted Haman and he had a gallows built. Did you notice how high that gallow is built? 75 feet high! 75 feet! You know, this is about more than executing Mordecai. These gallows that are built are to publicly shame and humiliate him. And he's emboldened with this, not only by his wife and his friends, but by the fact that Esther has invited him back to a second banquet. So we'll get into that next week in chapter 6. So what do we do with this chapter? What do we do with a chapter that simply talks about two banquets, two meals that are going to be between the king, the queen, and Haman? Well, I think, first of all, we need to look at Esther. This chapter is a call to courage to do what is right. It is a reminder that we can do the hard things that will bring about hope and healing. So, as we begin the season of Lent, we need to remind ourselves that We have been called to courage. It's not an easy thing. We also need to remind ourselves that like Haman, we have our own idolatries. At what cost does it come to other people? In the case of Haman, his idolatry in his narcissism is to be elevated higher than anyone else. But he's going to kill an entire people group as a result. Can I ask you a very delicate question? What is it that you idolize that will cause you to demonize what threatens that? That's a tough thing to think about, isn't it? But that's the type of thing that we have to think about at times, especially during the season of Lent. What you idolize will often cause you to demonize what threatens that idol. But here's the good news. You don't have to be stuck in this identity. Haman never changes. His life, I'll give you a preview, will end tragically, shamefully, and publicly. We'll get to that next week. In a tragic way, Haman wants to take away the identity of everyone else and then ends up losing his own. Esther, on the other hand, is willing to lose her life, if necessary, and certainly her position as queen, but she will help someone else in the process. It has been said that courage is not the absence of fear, it is the willingness to do the very thing we fear the most. Esther is a trembling mass of courage. How do we put those two words together? A trembling mass and courage. But that's sort of the way it works. She takes the risk and puts herself in a better place for the future. And we all need to make the same decision at various points in our life. What is your queen's gambit? So this magical story of the book of Esther is to bring us to a point to understand what is our Queen's Gambit. Now, let me take you on a side road for two minutes. In the closing sequence of the Netflix series, The Queen's Gambit, the chess-playing heroine, her name is Beth Harmon in the movie, defeats her arch-rival Vasily Borgov at the Moscow Invitational. She wins the match, making her the world's best chess player. Well, the next day, she's supposed to come home to America. But she impulsively skips her flight home to join a group of adoring chess players in what appears to be Moscow's famous Sokolinki Park. Now, the symbolism at the end of this series is fascinating and it's quite clear. Dressed in a blazing white coat and hat, Beth Harmon becomes a chess queen with the power to move freely through the world of men. Let me say that again. At the end of the series, Beth Harmon becomes a chess queen with the power to move freely through the world of men, and that is what she accomplished through the queen's gambit. She makes her way into a world that was closed to her. So chess becomes a picture of life in miniature at times. Certainly, we all have our Haman's out there that want to destroy us, and at times we are Haman's in other people's lives. And have you noticed there's always a Haman down the hall looking in? There's always a Haman in the hallway wanting to destroy something for their own sake. And we all have our own queen's gambit it is that moment where we must find the courage to take a chance. Sometimes it is epic, like the choices of Oskar Schindler, who was a German industrialist and a member of the Nazi party who is credited with saving the lives of 1,200 Jews during the Holocaust by employing them in his enamelware and ammunition factory in occupied Poland Preventing them from being deported to Auschwitz. Sometimes it's emotional, like contacting your birth father, who you never knew. Or moving past sorrow toward joy through the hardest of circumstances. Sometimes it's expensive, like trying to better yourself through counseling and getting past depression and moving toward peace. Sometimes it's exhausting, like taking care of aging parents or a child with special needs. Sometimes, though, it's quite evocative. It's like being called out to become something better. There is always a Haman in the hallway wanting to hate rather than to heal. And the Queen's gambit for us is the willingness to take a chance. And recognize that we, in many ways, are like that figure in the song sung by the Eagles called Desperado. You remember it. And I'm gonna have Corey just kind of put a YouTube link that you can go and look at this song and listen to it. But here's a couple of the lyrics Desperado, why don't you come to your senses? You've been out riding fences for so long now. You're a hard one, and I know that you've got your reasons. But these things that are pleasing you will hurt you somehow. Don't you draw the queen of diamonds, boy. She'll beat you if she's able. You know the queen of hearts is always your best bet. Now it seems to me some fine things have been laid upon your table, but you only want the ones that you can't get. Does this sound like Haman or what? Desperado, you ain't getting no younger. Your pain and your hunger, they're driving you home. Freedom, oh freedom. Well, that's just some people talking. Your prison is walking through this world all alone. Don't, you feel your, uh, don't your feet get cold in the wintertime? The sky won't snow and the sun won't shine. It's hard to tell the nighttime from the day. You're losing all your highs and lows. Isn't it funny how the feeling goes away? Desperado, why don't you come to your senses? Come down from your fences and open the gate. It may be raining, but there's a rainbow above you. You better let somebody love you before it's too late. Boy, that's the queen's gambit. The willingness to exchange your identity From one thing that might be more beneficial to you to something that is more of your destiny. So take a chance on something that might open a whole new world for yourself and consequently for other people too. And let someone love you as you love them. That is the greatest risk that we can ever take. And maybe that should be the closing thought in this message, on Valentine's Day. God bless you.